Good morning and welcome to another episode of Kings and Queens, the podcast where we read, watch, play, and discuss history's favorite scream queens and literary kings of horror. I am your host, Nat, and I'm so grateful that you're here with me. Today we are diving into chapter three of Stephen King's Holly. It's a pretty short chapter, so this will be a pretty short episode. Uh, And if you did not, I highly recommend going back and reading the first two chapters with us. As a reminder, when you hear this sound, that means I have stopped reading from the text and am discussing thoughts, interpretation, etc. When the sound replays, that means the mic is back to the author. Now, last week, we were finally introduced to the heroine, our main character of the story, Miss Holly Gibney, uh, and got a little bit of background knowing that she lost her mother to COVID uh, and she does have a new case brewing. So without further ado, let's start chapter three of Holly. Chapter three, November 22 through 25, 2018. Chapter three, September 10, 2015. Part one, page 31. Carrie Dressler is young, unattached, not bad-looking, cheerful, rarely prone to worrying about the future. He's currently sitting on a rocky outcrop covered with initials, high on good grass and sipping a pico while he watches Raiders of the Lost Ark. On a weekend, this outcrop, known as Drive-In Rock, would be crowded with kids drinking beer, smoking weed, and grab-assing around, but this is a Thursday night and he has it all to himself, which is how he likes it. This rock is on the west side of Deerfield Park, near the edge of the thickets. This area is a tangle of trees and undergrowth. From most locations therein, it would be impossible to see Red Bank Avenue, let alone the Magic City drive-in screen, but here a ragged cut runs down to the street, maybe caused by flooding or a long-ago rock slide. Magic City is barely hanging on these days. Nobody wants to swap bugs and listen to the soundtrack on AM radio when there are three cineplexes spotted around the city, all with Dolby sound and one even with IMAX, which is kicking. But you can't smoke weed in a cineplex. On drive-in rock, you can smoke all you want. And after an eight-hour shift at strike em out lanes, Carrie wants. There's no sound, of course, but Carrie doesn't need it. Magic City shows strictly second, third, and fourth-run movies these days, and he's seen Raiders at least ten times. He knows the dialogue and murmurs a snatch now, between tokes. Snakes! Why did it have to be snakes? Raiders will be followed by Last Crusade, which Carrie has also seen many times. Not as many as Raiders, but at least four. He won't stay, not for that one. He'll finish his Pico, get on his moped, now stashed in the bushes near the park entrance closest to Drive-In Rock, and ride home, very carefully. His joint is down to a nubbin. He butts it on the outcrop between BD and GL, and Mandy sucks. He stores the roach, inspects the contents of his fanny pack, and debates between a skinny J and a fatty. He decides on the J. He'll smoke half of it, eat the Kit Kat bar also stashed in his fanny pack, then putt-putt his way back to the apartment. He gets lost in the bright images playing out a quarter of a mile away, and ends up smoking almost all of it. He hears the John Williams music in his head and vocalizes, keeping it on the down low in case anyone else is nearby. Unlikely at 10pm on a Thursday night, but not impossible. Carrie stops abruptly. He just heard a voice, didn't he? He cocks his head to one side, listening. Maybe it was his imagination. Dope doesn't ordinarily make him paranoid, only mellow, but on occasion. He's decided it was nothing when the voice speaks up again. Not close, but not all that far away, either. It's the battery, hon. I think it's dead. There's nothing wrong with Carrie's eyesight, and from his vantage point, he quickly spots the location of that voice. Red Bank Avenue will never be in the running as one of the nicest streets in the city, 
There are the thickets on one side, crowding the few paths and pushing through the raw iron fence. On the other are warehouses, a used storage outfit, a defunct auto repair shop, and a couple of vacant lots. One of those was home to a bedraggled little carnival that picked up stakes after Labor Day. In the other, next to a long deserted convenience store, is a van with a side door open and a ramp sticking out. There's a wheelchair next to the ramp with someone in it. This gave me some immediate foreboding, and I wish I had caught it early when they mentioned the battery, but very obvious that we are implying that Carrie here may be in danger as the academic couple might be pulling the same ruse that they did on Jorge Castro. I can't stay here all night, the wheelchair occupant says. She sounds old and wavery, a little irritated and a little scared. Call for help. I would, says the man with her, but my phone is dead. I forgot to charge it. Do you have yours? Juicy. Their MO has deliciously already changed. The basis is the same, the wheelchair that is no longer working appropriately, uh, a frail elderly person not being able to push their partner up in the wheelchair on the ramp. Uh, the only difference that I'm seeing so far is that now Mrs. is in the wheelchair instead of Mr. I don't know if there's any significance to that. I left it at home. What are we going to do? It won't occur to Carrie until later, too late to do any good, that the woman in the wheelchair and the man with her are projecting their voices. Not much, not yelling or anything, but the way actors on stage project for their audience. Later he'll realize that he was the audience they were playing to. The guy sitting on drive-in rock with the joint winking on and off like a locator beacon. Later, he'll realize how often he stops off there for a while on his way home from the bowling alley, smoking a doob and watching the movie across the way. He decides he can't just sit there while the old guy goes off looking for help, leaving the woman alone. Carrie is your basic good person, more than happy to do the occasional good deed. Well, hindsight's 2020, isn't it? Uh, I thought it was interesting that he considers how often he follows this routine. It implies that potentially his captors, which what I suspect will be his captors, maybe were planning their victims and stalking them out and, and really trying to plan the kidnapping. And of course they're going after heartstrings again. They seem to target men, as far as we can tell so far. Uh, and as far as we can tell, Carrie is neither Hispanic nor a gay man. So unsure on motive, but it seems like they're targeting men that are good people, they know will help, and can also do the physical labor of trying to push a motorized wheelchair up a ramp. He makes his way down the slope, holding onto branches to keep from going on his ass. He gives his moped, Faithful Pony, a little pat as he passes it. When he reaches one of the Red Bank Avenue gates out of the park, he walks down the sidewalk until he's opposite the van. He calls, need a little help? It won't occur to him until later in the cage to wonder why they picked that particular place to park. An abandoned quick pick store is hardly a beauty spot. Who's there? The man calls, sounding worried. Name's Carrie Dressler. Can I? Carrie? My goodness, hon, it's Carrie. Carrie steps into the street, peering. Small ball, is that you? The man laughs. It's me, all right. Listen, Carrie, the battery in my wife's wheelchair died. I don't suppose you could push it up the ramp, could you? For me, this was extremely confirmatory that one, they're picking people that they know, and two, they are planning out these kidnappings based on their victims' routines.
I think I can manage that, Carrie says, crossing the street. Indy Jones to the rescue. The old lady laughs. I saw that movie at the old Bijou. Thank you so much, young man. You're a lifesaver. Roddy Harris is telling his wife how he and the rescuer know each other. Carrie grabs the wheelchair, hand grips, and aims the chair for the ramp. Smallball stands back to give him room, one hand in the pocket of his tweed jacket. Carrie is so high that he doesn't even feel the needle when it goes in the back of his neck. End of chapter three. I warned you this one was going to be a quickie, uh, but we did in fact gain a lot of knowledge about our captors in this particular chapter. They have similar MOs, but not the same, and there seems to be a pattern to their victims. Uh, the other thing I can't figure out is motive for this new guy. They also leave the reasoning of how Rodney Harris and Carrie Dressler know each other completely a mystery to the reader, so I'm really curious about how that's going to play out. Thank you so much for joining me on another fine Sunday, and next week we will dive into Chapter 4 of Stephen King's Holly. Please come back and join me. It's a pleasure to do this with you, uh, and don't forget to like and subscribe. Remember, it is just a bunch of hocus-pocus.